Recently, uh, I was talking to a group of us, actually, and uh, another pastor who actually he ministers uh, with college students. And we were just chatting online with uh, a group of us. And uh, he was telling me about a conversation he had with a young man uh, on, on the college campus uh, pretty recently. And um, this, this young man, and he does not go to church anymore. Because he says it's just a place where he was brainwashed. And that, that's his, his, uh, his reason for not going to church. He says just a place he was brainwashed. And, and, and that is essentially what religion does, he said. I mean, the student was from a mainline church, but from a young age, and he's just telling us, you know, from a young age, he was taught by his parents and his, and his priests about Christianity. And, and his argument was that, if that is all a child is taught, you know, and, and, uh, and told as, a child, as the child is growing up, how do you not call that being indoctrinated or brainwashed? And he was actually uh, kind of bragging, I, I would say mocking, uh, you know, uh, to an extent, because there's sarcasm in there, about being baptized as an infant and knowing the Apostles' Creed and knowing, you know. But now that he's older... Uh, he's made up his own mind, you know, and he doesn't want to do this anymore because he's just brainwashed. And Anyway, he brought, a, brought up a lot of other stuff, and my friend kind of asked him about some of the stuff that he had brought up. And he just said, so where is that mentioned in the Bible and some things that he said? And this guy kind of uh, didn't have an answer. He kind of got stumped, and, and, and then he asked him, uh, this is my friend, the pastor, asked him, so you say you are brainwashed by your pastor and your parents into Christianity. And he says, why have you not gone straight to the source to see what it says and then make up your mind? And so rather than rejecting what your parents and your pastors have taught you, why don't you see what the Bible has to say before you make up your mind? And that, that, that student was just, yeah, you know. But that was really interesting. That's really interesting, and we kind of talked about it uh, past couple of weeks uh, on Wednesdays too. About how many people we have in church who know a lot about God, but don't really know God Himself. They come, you know, to the services, and they have an encounter, and they have. I don't doubt that encounter and, you know, they have that experience with God, but that's about it. Especially the younger folk, they do not know how to experience God in their everyday lives. That's the challenge. Because if you rely on a one-time experience and an encounter with God, you're not going to make it very far in your Christian walk with, or your walk with the Lord. You know, and that's the challenge. We've said this on, 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 on Wednesday nights too. The challenge, especially uh, with the younger generation, for us as uh, older people, that they grow in their love for the knowledge and the scriptures. Because that's where they really experience God. Through His Word. Not just on Sunday morning or on Wednesday nights, but it ought to be every single day when they encounter God through his word, and that's my passion, and that should be our passion also. Because hear me out, church, being a Christian 
And you know this already. Being a Christian is not about how much you know about God. It's about knowing God. Amen. It's about, it's, it's not about getting it right at all times. It's about having a real authentic relationship with Christ. It's not about riding on a spiritual high at all times, but it is about hungering and thirsting for God Himself. Amen. You have to be all in in your commitment to following Christ. I've said this several times. It's never about being perfect, but it's about loving God with everything inside of you. I've titled my sermon this morning, The Greatest Command, and you probably can guess where I'm going with it. Actually, it, it kind of is amazing to me. It amazes me and it shouldn't surprise us, but it's kind of uh, amazing how openly hostile people have become to the gospel of Christ or towards the church, really. I was watching one of these street evangelists and, of course, people were just, this one person was just in his face just tearing into the church, you know. And, he, and then this guy, he was like, you all are all, of course, the, all the words, haters, bigots, everything, you know. And then he was like, oh, I love a little Jesus and I love a little Bible. And I'm sitting there shaking my head. You cannot pick and choose which part of the Bible and which part of Jesus you want to follow. Right. You're either all in or you're not. Right. It's all or nothing. It is all or nothing. And that's kind of what we need to be. We need to learn to love God. We need to learn to love Him with everything within us. You can't love Him on a part-time basis. You've got to love Him. At all times and love Him with everything that is within you. And that's our scripture for this morning. If you want to turn, it's a common scripture in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and the parallel actually is in Mark and we'll refer to that. It's a passage that most of us are familiar with. And I got the Mark and I didn't get the Matthew. It is. Matthew 22, verses 34, all the way down. We have it on the screen as well. The heading itself says the greatest commandment. And so it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. Verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, as all the, sorry, as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, commandments. One of my professors and actually mentors used to challenge us uh, with something that, that he was challenged as, uh, as a young man. And, you know, because being in church and being brought up in church, and I can empathize with that first uh, person uh, my friend was talking about too. Because if you ask that person, hey, are you a Christian? Most likely they would say yes. But this pastor challenged him with, and he's talking about my uh, mentor. He said he challenged him with, not about, are you a Christian, but do you love God? It's totally two different things. 
You may consider yourself a Christian, but do you love God? I know the word love is thrown around a lot. You can be in love and out of love in, in, I don't know, seconds, I guess. You can love someone one day and the next day you find something on Instagram or Facebook and you can hate that person after that. And then two days later you can go love him again. I don't know, just love them again. It's just, anyway. But when we read the text, it's pretty obvious to us that that's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about at all. In fact, the love that he's talking about is not really human in its origin. It is a divine love that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. As you look at uh, Matthew chapter 22, this, this narrative is, uh, happens during, this encounter happens during what we call the Passion Week. On Monday, we have the triumphant entry where Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. And of course, he's riding this donkey and everybody's so excited. The crowds are excited. They're screaming, Hosanna, and they're ready to make him king. But then Jesus leaves and he goes and then the next day he comes back into Jerusalem. Again, people, they haven't lost this fervor, haven't lost the energy. You know, he comes in again and of course he goes straight to the temple. And what does he do at the temple? Just drives out all these people and he, what we call the cleanses the temple. He cleanses the temple. People are still riding, like I said, the high from the triumphant entry. And, and here he is now kind of, they hope he's going to overthrow the Romans. But instead, what does he do? He attacks who? The Jewish leaders and what they're doing right there. Correct? The religious system. And he cleanses the temple, kind of kicks all these tables over and drives out the people. And so the people in my mind are going, okay, yeah, okay, he's taking a next step. He's going, the revolution has begun. He's going to take on the Romans next. But then he leaves and he goes out again. The second day, Tuesday, he goes out again, uh, leaves and he spends the night in Bethany. Bethany is where his friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live. Uh, Lazarus being the Lazarus who he raised from the dead. Anyway, the next morning, which is Wednesday morning, he comes back in. And like I said, this, this expectation that has been building up. There's this expectation that has been building up, you know, because he's made this grand entrance. He's created this total scene Now he's got their attention. Everybody's attention is on Jesus right now. And now that he's got his attention, their attention, he starts teaching. And so people are holding on to everything that he says. And of course, the people love him, but not everybody loves him, right? Because the religious leaders, they just have no idea what to do with Jesus. They can't. If you want to say, put it this way. They are over the tipping point, you know, right now. And their hatred to Jesus, they're over the limit right now. The hatred has broken the meter, if you want to call it that. Because they can't really tolerate him. Their hatred for them is like beyond anything like before. And the decision has been made. We need to get rid of him. We need to find a way to get rid of him. They need to find a way to get rid of him because... Several reasons. He's become so popular, he's become more popular than them themselves. For the priests and the religious leaders, it was never about the law. It was more about how to control people with the law, manipulate the law in a way that they could control people. And now all of a sudden they're losing that control because Jesus is around and he's telling them something totally different. And they don't like him. And of course he attacks their main hustle, right? Making money in the temple. He's attacked that too. So now they don't like that because their side... Gig is done. 
And so they are all convinced, hey, we've got to get rid of him, but they can't because the miracles he's done, the blind person he healed is right there. Lazarus who he raised from the dead is right there. So they can't just go in and get rid of him like that. So it's, it's a complicated matter. So they do what every politician, I say, every politician does, you know. When you have an opponent, what do you do? Find a way to pull him down. Find a way to get the people to turn on him. Pull up some dirt on him or whatever, you know. And that's exactly what they're trying to do here. How do you get rid of the most popular person in town right now? And so you see, it's kind of interesting, the whole chapter, chapter 22, because that's what they are trying to do. And it's kind of interesting, because if you go back one chapter, chapter 21, chapter 21 and 22, basic, uh, sorry, uh, basically attacks the priests themselves and these religious leaders right now. And verse 45 is an interesting verse right there. Chapter 21, Matthew 21, verse 45, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parallels, they knew he was talking about them. He's getting to them. Now he's really got under the skin. And then they see, they looked for ways to arrest him, but they were afraid what the crowd, because the people held that he was a prophet. So he's attacked their teachings, he's attacked their business, he's attacked them themselves. And so they are convinced they've got to get rid of him. And so what do they do in the chapter 22? As we come to chapter 22, they try and trick him. They try and trip, trip him up, basically. They ask him about taxes in verse 15. The Pharisees, verse 15, uh, chapter 22, the Pharisees went out, you know, the idea of trapping him. And what did they say? Hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Basically wanting Jesus to make a political statement that they could use to tell the Romans, hey, this is the guy who's leading a rebellion. So then they don't have to do anything. The Romans will take care of it, right? Now we know that doesn't work. Then of course you come down and the Sadducees try in verse 23 with the weirdest of questions about, you know, about marriage and, and the resurrection and everything else. And always it's a total scam question because the Sadducees never even believed in the resurrection in the first place. And they're asking about whose wife shall, will she be in the resurrection. Total, you can tell the intentions were not right. But anyway, the answer kind of blows them away. And so no one else is left till they come to verse 34. In verse 34, it says, interesting again, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees get together. Now they don't, and, and the word silence, I always point to that thing in this passage. The word silence is actually the word gagged. It's like you stump them so much where they don't have an answer at all. They can't say anything anymore. And that's the word used, they gagged. It's the same word that, uh, if you remember, it goes, when Jesus silences the storm, it's the same word. It's the same word when, uh, in, that was Mark 12, if I'm not mistaken. Mark tw uh, sorry, Mark 4, where he silences the storm. And same word used in Mark, 21, uh, Mark 1 where he silences the demon. It's the same. He gagged them. They couldn't say anything anymore. And of course, it's, again, normally the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they don't like each other, but they unite against a common enemy, Jesus, right now. And so they come together, and they are trying to trip him up, hearing, verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him, with this question. 
In the first part, you saw it was just the Pharisees who came in verse 15, you know, who asked them about taxes. But now, you know, they're going to send the big guys and the experts of the law. So it's kind of building up. The experts of the law, one of them, the expert from the law. If you read Mark's parallel to this, uh, to the same passage and what Mark has to say about this event, it's kind of interesting because uh, it kind of, Mark kind of lays out that this expert in the law had a little genuine curiosity about what Jesus was saying. He was kind of slightly impressed by what Jesus was teaching. And it's kind of interesting. And we look at it in a little while because Jesus at the end, he says, hey, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So it kind of compliments him towards, uh, towards the end in Mark. Anyway, this expert of the law comes to test him. Main idea again is what? They want him to look bad in front of the people. And so now he comes in with the law and Moses, what Moses taught, right? It's kind of like he, Moses is one of the big three. You have Abraham, the father. You have David, the great king. And Moses is the lawgiver. And so their intentions are pretty clear. They want him to say something against the law, something against what Moses said. And as soon as they, he says that, then they can say, hey, he's a blasphemer and we know the people will all get upset about it. So they want him to, to, to say something bad. But verse 36, it says, teacher, again, kind of more uh, sarcastic in, uh, rather than genuinely calling him a teacher, right? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now, if you remember, there are, what, around 613 laws that the Pharisees had, 613 words in, uh, in the law. And so they, want, they had 613, sorry, 613 words in the Ten Commandments, and they had 613 laws that they came up with. And then, of course, they added more. And so the question is, which one of them is the greatest command? And there's no hesitation when Jesus replies in verse 37, Love, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. They expect him to say something contrary to what Moses says, but what he throws back at them is what Moses said. Again, in Deuteronomy 6, chapter, four, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, what we know as the Shema, as they call it, the Shema in, in, in uh, the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew tradition. So instead of trying to trip him up, what he does is give them the law that they already know. He quotes what he says in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Here were Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And then verse 5 is where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. A little different because Matthew puts mind in there. And Mark actually says mind and strength. We'll talk about that in a little while. But the point is this. He gives them a scripture that they all are familiar with. They all should know it. I mean, they wore it as scrolls, a mezuzah on, their, on, their, uh, on the doorpost, actually. And then, what do you call it? Uh, on their heads. That scroll, the same verse was stuck on their heads. Right? And so they had that all the time. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's straight from Deuteronomy and he gives them that verse and that's what he's trying to say. Hey, it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. There is no, uh, nothing new in the sense. It is the same thing that I'm talking about. That's the greatest law. Of course, in Hebrew, he's talking about love there and he says, love the Lord your God. The love that he talk about in the Hebrew is the love of the mind. 
The love of action rather than just feeling and emotion. And of course, we have the Greek version of that, which is agape, which is different from phileo. Agape is this intentional love. It's the love of the will. And it's, if you, if, lack of another word, divine in nature. So both in the Hebrew and the Greek, he's referring to the love, which is a highest form of love, a love that is intentional, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is divine in essence. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's a little different from what they say in Deuteronomy, but just let's look at, look at this, break down this verse in a minute. Love the Lord your God, and how do you love Him? With all your heart. All your heart. Again, the understanding, the Jewish understanding that the heart represented the core of someone's identity Everything comes from the heart. It deals with intellect. The heart produces thought. The heart produces the word. And the heart produces actions. That's the thing from inside, deep inside. The heart. So as the man, it says, as the man thinks in his heart, that's what he is, right? So it's that intellectual part that you're talking about right there. And then he says, with the word soul. The word soul, this is the emotional part. This is the emotional part where it says, he uses the same word in Matthew 26, 38. It says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. It's that emotions right there. It's the emotional part. So you have the intellectual in, inner part and then you have what we call the soul, which is the emotional part with all your soul. And then he says, with all your mind. With all your mind, Jesus says. And again, uh, like I pointed out earlier, he's replacing uh, the Deuteronomy says might or strength, and Jesus uses mind, and he's not miscoding at all. He's not forgotten what Deuteronomy says, but he's actually being more specific in that case, in this case right here. The mind is another way of saying might or strength. We use the phrase, if you, you can do it if you put your mind to it. The idea is the idea of this drive, the determination. There's this intentionality in there. You can do it if you put your mind to it. And that's what he's talking about right here. Worshiping God. I mean, loving God with your mind. And then Mark, of course, throws in the words with all your strength. And that's talking about human physical capability as well. And so you see here this overlapping of, yes, these four ways and how to love God, which perfectly balances himself. Intellectual love that's from deep within, a feeling of love that is, in, that is emotions involved. There's intentionality in the love with all your might. There's this determination. And then there's also this physical aspect of love with all your strength where you serve him and love him. Again, I think it's, it's pretty deliberate the way Jesus puts this in there because he realizes and he wants us and that's what we are to learn. That loving God has to be balanced in all areas of our life. Loving Him. Loving Him with everything within us. Loving Him with everything within us, church. I know I've said this many times and I repeat myself pretty often. 
God is calling us to know Him. But as we grow in our knowledge of Him, the only right response is loving Him more. It's a cycle we talk about, you know. The more we know Him, the more we can't help but love Him. And the more we love Him, the more we want to get to know Him. It's just this unending cycle we talk about. Let's get real for a moment here again. God is not looking for a people who do church. He's not looking for a group of people who do the rituals that we associate with church. God is looking for people who on the outside and the inside know how to love Him. Love Him with everything. That's what He's looking for. Love Him with our whole being. That is what God is looking for. I mean, when God loved us, He gave us His Son. He loved us with everything. How can we love Him with only part of our being? That's what God is calling us to, church. To love Him wholeheartedly. Love Him with everything. Love Him with our entire being. Love Him, church. The greatest command is to love Him with everything within us. Love Him with everything within us. God demonstrated His love for us, church. That kind of love when He gave His Son. He gave it all, put it all there. We can't respond with a half-hearted love. We can't respond with a half-hearted love. Our love needs to be loving. We need to love Him with everything within us, everything within us. And loving God isn't about what we can get from Him, church. It's loving Him for what He has already done for us on that cross. Our love for Him is not based on what we can get from Him. Our love for Him is based on what He has already done for each and every one of us. I know I've said this before too. It's not about knowing, it's not about believing. Because James says even the devils know and they also believe. The difference is this. We got to love Him. The knowledge of God does not save us, church. The knowledge of God does not save us. Believing is great. But the only evidence of genuine change is our love for God. Our love for God. And that's what makes us different. That's the distinguishing mark of authentic Christianity is loving God with everything within us. Loving God with everything within us. Church, that's the only way we ought to love God. That's our only real response to God's love is to love Him that way. We cannot settle for half-hearted love for God. Love Him with everything within us, church. Love Him with everything within us. No one is ever right with God just because we do all the right things. The evidence of being right with God is an ever-deepening and growing love for Him. Love for Him. I say this many times, and I just said this to someone recently. 
just because you believe doesn't make you a Christian. A real Christian is evidenced by his love for God. It's a passion for a real relationship with God. That's the evidence of being a real Christian. What God wants from you and what God wants from me is that we love him with everything within us. Whenever I teach on this passage, I always, I always compare it to what Jesus says to the Pharisees in the very next chapter. So if you have your Bible, you could turn to the next to the next chapter. I always con- contrast it to what he says to the religious leaders because seven times he rebukes them pretty harshly. Starting in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 16, Woe to you, and he calls them blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 23, like verse 25, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, verse 27, calls them hypocrites again. Verse 29, he calls them hypocrites again. Why is he calling hypocrites? Because they knew the law but did not know how to love God. That's what makes a hypocrite. You can know all that there is to know about God, but if you don't love Him with everything within you, you are just the same. You and I are hypocrites if we don't love God with everything within us. They didn't love God. They knew the verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. They knew it, but they didn't really know how to love God. They didn't really love God. said this a little while earlier, the real evidence of authentic Christianity is an ever-deepening love for God. That's the main characteristic of a saved person. If you search the Old Testament, you know, it always says, love me and keep my commandments. Love me, keep my commandments. Somehow through the years, the Pharisees made the same mistake and somehow we in the church have made the same mistake. We've talked about, okay, if I do the right things, then God will love me. It's the total opposite, church. It's always the opposite. Our obedience comes from our love for God. Our obedience comes from our love for God, the Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and keep His commands. The order is love Him and then keep His commands. Nowhere, again, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say to do these things so that God will love you. Let's not pretend because we do the same thing. We do the right things because we think God is going to be pleased with us and love us. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. We do because we love him. Love him. We do because we genuinely love him, because we genuinely desire him, because we're genuinely committed to a relationship with him through his word. Same thing Jesus keeps saying, you know. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Love is at the root of everything. This is nothing new. This is the same thing God has said in the Old Testament. He's saying the same thing in the New Testament. Love him with everything within us. 
Love Him with everything within us. Somehow, like I said, we got the order wrong, but you see, God calls us to love Him. Why should we love Him? Why should we love Him? And like we sang earlier, and that's why I was moved, really. We love Him because He alone is worthy of that kind of love. He alone is worthy of that kind of love. How can you resist, as one commentator put it, how can you resist loving someone who's perfect? If we love imperfect people, how can we resist loving someone who's perfect? How can you not love someone who loves you with an undying, unending love? How can you not love someone who's gracious and compassionate and merciful? How can you not love someone that doesn't throw you to the curb, cast you away just because you make a mistake? How can you not love someone who took your place and paid the price that you should have paid? How can you not love someone like that? How can you not love someone who gave it all for you and for me? Why should we love God? Because He gave it all for us. He gave it all for us. I know this love is not natural because, just being honest, people learn, have learned, and have become more and more convinced that they got to love themselves. You know, loving others doesn't come naturally. That's what Jesus goes on to say. Love God. But then he also says, love those around us. It doesn't come naturally, church. It's, it's kind of interesting. and I know I'm going a little off track. Why do people resent God? I mean, they come up with all kinds of reasons they can come up with. But when you read him and know who he really is, they resent a version of God that they have learned somewhere, found on the internet for all I know. I don't care. They have not taken time to dig into God's word to know who he really is. Because when you know him, you won't resent him. You learn to love him more. Don't settle for a form of Christianity that is taught by your parents or the priest. Know him from the first source, the true source, the only source, which is the word of God. I know they use, you know, following and every time, it's so, it's so often, you know, if I follow Jesus, all these restrictions and all these rules I got to follow, you know, and they don't want anything to do with that. If I have to love God, I've got to follow all these rules. That's not how it is. He says what? My yoke is easy. We'd rather fall under the expectations of what the world requires from us, keeping up with the Joneses and everybody else we see on, online, and we put that pressure on ourselves. We don't even think about it. But when he says, you follow me, and that yoke is easy, the burden is light, we don't want anything to do with that. That's wrong. That's not being smart. But we don't want that because we built up in our heads. Somehow, if I follow Jesus and love him, I've got to give up so much. No. The truth is when you love him, you, won't, you can't help but follow what he has to say. Hallelujah. Again, it's not a drive for perfection at all. It's drive for what? To love him more. Amen. To love him more. What God desires from each one of us, men and women, women is that we love 
Him, love Him with everything within us. This is what one more commentator says about God. It's a love that meditates about our love for God. It's a love that meditates on God and His glory like we see in Psalm 18. It's a love that trusts in God's great power even though we don't understand. It's a love that seeks to fellowship with God and seeks a relationship with God. It's a love that brings peace in our soul like it says in Psalm 119. It's a love that is sensitive to how God feels. It's a love that loves what God loves. It's a love that hates what God hates. It's the love that grieves over sin. It's the love that that rejects the worldly standards of things. It's a love that longs and desires to be in Christ's presence itself. God delights in our love for Him. Put it that way. We ought to love Him with everything within us, church. Again, this It is not a call to perfect obedience. It's a call to love Him with everything within us. That desire is what we are called to. That's the desire. A true true believer is a lover of God. A true believer is a lover of God. Evidenced by His love for God, like I said, and love for those around us. Love for those around us. The first commandment is the greatest. And he says the second one is like uh, like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're talking about the same kind of nature. As you love God, you ought to love your uh, neighbor as well. It kind of ties it all together. Our love for those around us flows from our love for God. Our love for those around us flows from our love for God. Not the other way around. Pharisees didn't do that. They burdened people with all kinds of stuff, right? They took all the laws and made that like a a burden on everybody around them. But loving God is never, never a burden, church. Loving God is never a burden. It is intentional. It is sacrificial. It is very much a, a thing of our strength and our might. We've got to use everything within us to love Him. Again, loving others is not natural, but that's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. Just tying it up real quick here. Loving others is something God enables us to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, that's such a difference because we are consumed as a society with things that, you know, that matter to us. We love our own comfort. We love things that cater to our needs, right? But what God talks about is loving people and being concerned about others too. Not, and please, it's not like you got to, there is a balance. It's talking about balance there. It's just the point is don't be consumed with self-love, but be consumed with God's love for you, which makes you concerned with those around you. Think about others the way you look at yourself as well. We are called by God to love Him and love those around us. And that's why I say it all the time. We as a church, we're about what? Loving God and loving people. Loving God and loving people. Church, Christianity is really not complicated. 
it really isn't about complicated it isn't as complicated as some people make it out to be it's about loving god with everything within you and loving people who god brings across your life Amen. love god and loving people it's not complicated the holy spirit empowers us to do it because some people are hard to love I'll, I'll be honest but god calls us to love our enemies as well but it's not complicated church Sorry, I didn't mean to make light of it, but that's just the truth. It's kind of interesting in Mark. This Pharisee, he answers Jesus' question. And when Jesus says this, he says, hey, you're right. And he kind of repeats the same thing that Jesus says, repeats that law. And then Jesus says to him right at the end, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And I want to close with this point. This person knew what the law was. He believed the law, but he was still one step short of the kingdom of God because he didn't know how to do it. He did not love like what the law said. Knowledge is great. Believing is great. But we are called to love God with everything within us. Love Him with everything within us. I want to love God more. And as I love God more, I learn to love those around me. That's the real, the real response to God's love. The more I know him, I always say this, the more I know him, the more I love him. Our knowledge of God drives our relationship with him deeper and deeper and deeper. Bow your heads with me at this time. I want to reflect real quick as we close on, on that last portion in the Gospel of Mark where he says, hey, you know it, you believe it, that's great. Now go do it. That's the mark of authentic Christianity. That's the mark of person who is in the kingdom of God. That's the mark of person who's gospelized, who's the gospel has got a hold of his life because he knows, he believes, but he also loves God. That's the evidence. Loving those around us. If we ask people, and I ask you, I guess, are you a Christian? I'm persuaded that a number of people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Not just here, just in church in general. But if I have to push and ask the question, do you love Jesus? What would your response be? You may know all the stories like that young man in the beginning. He was brought up in church. He knew everything there was to know and the Apostles' Creed and everything else. Knowing God 
is great church we all pursue that's our calling to pursue the knowledge of God but we can't stop there the knowledge of God ought to drop us to our knees in love for him I know this may sound cliche church but it's so true because that's the essence of authentic Christianity that relationship with God based on His love for us and our response of loving Him back. You can't love part-time. You can't love Him half-heartedly. got to love him with everything within you now the world may have many reasons why they reject or resist Christ and we let's be honest we at the church have been poor reflections of what God's love is all about but I encourage you to dig into God's word for yourself and as you know him I almost guarantee your love for him will grow love him with everything within you let's all stand to our feet and worship him